and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we will be exploring disruption, growth, and how to manage the uncertainty of the digital age. I'm delighted to welcome Brant Cooper, the author of The Lean Entrepreneur and Disruption Proof. Brant, welcome to the show. Thanks, Susie, for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So, Brant, as well as authoring your books on these subjects of changing the industrial age mindset into the digital age opportunity, if I may, you're also the founder of Moves the Needle, where you work with startups and large businesses around the world, helping them to reimagine their businesses and find the model that works for them, if you like, and make themselves, I'm going to use your words, disruption proof to to coin a phrase. I'm a big believer also in working intentionally on the human dimension of digital transformation for this very reason, so that the model works for us and so that it can be sustainable and so that humans can understand their adaptability and use it collectively to essentially move the needle on transformation. But you say very early on in your book, Disruption Proof, that we need to own disruption and that we need to create institutions that are designed and managed to survive disruption, but not only, but also to create value and continue to create value for all stakeholders. I would love to start there. If you could tell us a little bit more about that statement and what it means for being disruption-proof. So be clear, when I'm talking about disruption, I'm really talking about the things that seem to be happening on a regular basis that ripple across our lives, both as business owners, but also Mm. as individuals and Mm. ripple across the economy. And so I think that this is a This is a result of the digital age, the interconnectedness of the world, how fast everything is moving, the speed of information, the speed of disinformation. And so if we just look at the last several years, right? I mean, it's just one after the other. You've got the the pandemic, obviously, but supply chain issues and the big quit and war and boy, you know, failed bank here in the the U.S. And and so these things affect us. And so by owning disruption, I really think that people just need to realize that this is the new world that we're living in, that these events that have always happened at some level, they used to be more isolated regionally and they could be even very smallly isolated or it can be like they are now. Again, they they sort of affect us on a regular basis and we don't know, we don't necessarily know what the implications are or the ramifications. Mm-hmm. And so by owning it, I guess I mean that you know, this is the world that we're living in. And so we need to adapt how we're living. We need to adapt inside Mm -hmm. of businesses, our processes and our way of working to recognize that there's so much volatility and change that's just going to continue to happen. And I contrast it to the middle of the industrial age, which was, you know, if you made a new microwave oven, Mm -hmm. I knew that if you were able to get the basic features that people were going to buy it because life changing enough and, and, the, and the consumers only had a couple of choices and they weren't inundated really with all of these different choices that they have. And so it, if it actually provided benefit to them, they were going to buy it. There wasn't a lot of market risk. I don't think mm. in those days comparable to now it was technology risk. Can mm. we actually build this microwave oven such that it's safe mm. and provides value Today, we kind of know we can build stuff. And really, the the risk is on the market side. Do people care? Can we get their attention? Can we provide them value such that they're going to form a relationship with us that lasts? Or are they going to change their mind tomorrow and go to one of our competitors? And so we have to focus on the customer. We have to understand them deeply. We have to be learning how to compete again 
based upon creating value for human beings. Mm. And it brings me to what you talk about in your book around, it's about known knowns, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And I'm hearing the unknown unknowns here, although you split them into two categories, but it is, we're just living in 80% unknown unknowns, aren't we really? I think that's true. And, And businesses are really kind of organized around knowing yeah, and, and it's absolutely. why it's it, it's why it's you know top down and command control and the very structure of the business is that the boss gets to tell everybody what they're doing, and I think in this unknown unknowns age, yeah. the boss actually doesn't know either, and yeah. so she or he should stop pretending that they know <laughs> and actually empower their people to go figure things out. And guess what? That the responsibility is then for those people that are figuring it out is they have to share that information with all mm. of leadership so that leaders get to determine the priorities and the, you know make sure it's aligned with what they're trying to achieve growth wise and all of those other mm. strategic objectives but the actual work the actual insight the actual empathy development for customers that's got to come from you know sort of people on the ground floor is where it starts i think mm. which which brings me to rad organizations but before i go to the rap discussion. It also brings me to something that you say in your book around innovation and the fact that innovation is overused or used differently. And I love the anecdote where you, you took it out of your keynote speech five minutes before you went on stage <laughs> just because you didn't feel it had any meaning anymore or it had too, its meaning was too disparate. I love that. Um, I can just imagine how you felt about doing that. Um, <laughs> it was amusing. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, but but you also describe digital transformation as the new innovation theater. And, and I just want to stop on that because I found it compelling and I also found it interesting for my reasons. But I would like it if you could unpack that for our listeners to look at why for you digital transformation is the new innovation theater. Well, so let's start with the, the, the innovation. The problem with it is that it means so much so many different things to different people. Yeah. And so if you don't really stop and define what you mean by innovation, and what the desired outcomes are, then it's really meaningless to talk mm. about it. And in that particular talk, the room was <laughs> filled with innovation people. Brilliant anecdote. And, I loved it. <laughs> yeah. It, well, and they all, in the end, they all kind of laughed and they agreed with me because the thing is, is that they go and they talk to innovation with their CEO and and the CEO just wants revenue. And they go and they mm. talk to the CTO and the CTO is thinking about technology and they go talk to the head of marketing and they and they're talking really about sort of the hip culture or something like that. So it just means mm-hmm. so much, so many different things. Absolutely. So like I love the word innovation mindset. That's fine, but innovation itself really needs to be defined. Well, so now here we are down this path where digital transformation, like there's probably you know ten times more digital transformation conferences now than innovation oh, yeah. conferences. So people just like they did what I did. They crossed out the word innovation <laughs> and put digital, digital transformation. transformation. <laughs> And so again, all of these, the same problem is happening is that it's really that people are focusing on the technology. Mm. Like, you know, oh, we're going to digitally transform our refrigerator. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's great. And so the technology, again, it's sort of the easy part of the equation. We kind of know we can build it. If you really want a voice activated refrigerator, Mm. then yeah, I guess that you can have that. And what we're lacking then is again, the human side, like what is the impact that this is going to have? What is the value that we're driving? Does anybody really care? Is there a market for this? And so I think we need to 
pause and take a step back and make sure that we're we're designing for the human. And I guess it really often comes down to just that. It's yeah. specifically about design. And I it took, you know, the Silicon Valley culture decades and decades and decades before they actually, you know, paid attention to human-centered design and UX professionals and these people that put human beings at the center yes. of all of them. And I think again, it's happening again with digital transformation yeah. is that we're forgetting that human element. Mm -hmm. And we should really be putting designers at the forefront of this. And I just have personally, most health care companies, not the insurance companies, but people that are actually trying to produce products for patients really want to be patient-centric and they actually do want to make positive change in the world. Mm -hmm. But my experience inside of the healthcare industry is nobody's designing it. Yeah. Nobody actually looks at it from the perspective when a patient first gets a diagnosis, has the first appointment, walks into the hospital for the first time, is now in care. I mean, nobody looks at it from this mm. perspective of what is that human being going through? Mm. I think actually the Mayo Clinic and IDEO did it, a design firm, of course, mm. for children that were suffering from cancer. And so that they were designing the experience, keeping, you know, these young humans mm. in mind when we're, you know, when we're helping them, but also just we're tinkering with them, mm. you know, these little human beings. But I think it's the same thing for all patients. And, and, and it's the same thing for healthcare providers, doctors and nurses. And these people like during COVID and even afterwards have been completely overworked and, and, you know, and they've seen a lot of you know, traumatic things. Yeah. And so who's designing the experience with those people in mind? And so I think that those are both good examples of digital transformation. We can actually do impactful things, powerful things, but we have to keep the human, mm. the human being in mind when we're developing these things. Mm. And I think in a way we've gone back into patterns, haven't we? If I come back to the innovation discussion of we've got to a place now where we do use UX and we do use human-centered design, but then it gets put in a journey on the wall, whether it's customer journey or a user journey or patient journey. And then we think we've done it. And, right. and I think, and I think, you know, we don't often go and spend a day with the patient or spend a day with the employee. Or and so I think we're back into the very reason why you took innovation out of your keynote and how we started this part of our conversation is that it's been put into a blueprint, if you like, and therefore the status quo of that blueprint isn't being challenged. And which brings me to lean innovation and the idea of, you know. You say it's about empathy work, rapid experimentation, of course, and then also agile work, being diligent about leveraging evidence to not just inform decisions, but also check assumptions and make sure that it's still relevant. Do you think that today that process? So um, I do a lot of lean and quite a lot of design thinking. Can I, yeah, I'm with I'm with you on that, and I like the fact it's visual, but but it's only a given moment in time, isn't it? So, do you think that's enough today to be disruptive in inverted commas? Listen, I think that it's great that we actually have that stuff inside of businesses. Yeah, That's actually, yeah. we've made progress. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think that the agile part is, you know, a, a part of transformation, the failure of transformation, all these cultural and agile mm. and transformations is that the people that are doing the implementation aren't the ones that typically understand it or they don't understand the culture of the company and it ends up becoming process heavy and this is mm. where then it becomes that blueprint that you're discussing on a wall. It becomes, <laughs> right it becomes very linear and so it's actually just very waterfall but you know to me there's still 
this promise of agile and there's still this way of taking it to the next level that if you understand the principles, you know, the end of the sprint, you're supposed to be checking in with stakeholders, including customers, that we can build in mm. that the loop again. We can actually mm. build in this reconnecting. And a mm. matter of fact, we're doing exactly that with a health care company now. They've got the linear process. They've got one phase that's caused, it's called explore it. And so that's exactly what you're talking about. Oh, we're done with that phase. We don't need to explore anymore. Exactly. And so we're in there actually teaching them how to build that exploration, that learning, that customer centricity into every phase Mm. of their innovation, Mm. you know, practice. Mm. So I think, you know, if I'm optimistic, I'm going to say maybe the fact that they've got the blueprint on the wall at all means that they've made some sort of progress and now we can take help them move it to the next level. Mm. And if we're successful at that, I think we're going to start seeing where this really pays off. I mean, I am a relentless optimist and, and I like that. Um, but but I think if I come back to the discussion, I, I need to come back to a word that you said, I don't know, five, 10 minutes ago now, mindset. And therefore it's not a project, is it? And it's what I call hard change. So the technical change we we're talking about before is easy change, but, it, right. but it's the sort of Bob Keegan's adaptive challenges of actually changing the way we think, understanding why we feel and think what we do, et cetera, which brings me, uh, Brandt, to RAD organizations, which is the acronym for resilient, aware, and dynamic. And I think it's a great segue into <laughs> RAD organizations, what they are is my first question, and what they bring to the table. The way I describe RAD is, the first word, like you said, is resilient. And so if you think about the the classic image of that is the tropical tree on the shore, right? Where they actually have these roots that are super strong and they're clinging to the earth. Mm. And when I imagine that in a business, there's often a core differentiation or a core competency or, or a cultural element that maybe reaches all the way back to their founding mm. that provides strength to the organization. And I think that that's in, important but it's also that that tree can bend in the tropical storm, right? So it's it's strong but flexible. Yeah. And it's a core part of the business, the flexibility. And so that means that you have to be comfortable with the uncertainty. I guess this is kind of getting back to owning that, owning the word disruption. If this change continues to ripple, we can't pretend that the change is going to go away, right? Do you remember the the yeah. first couple of months of the pandemic, you know? executives inside of the big companies are like, we're just going to ride this out. You know, yeah. it's just going to be yeah. three or four months. It'll go away. Three, <laughs> right. And three or four months later, it's like, okay, now it's just three or four months later. But two years later, I mean, they failed or they had serious impact to their business or they're out of business because they didn't have this strength plus the flexibility. And so being comfortable with uncertainty is definitely a new skill set. And yeah. I guess the second word aware is that we have to build into the business the ability to look externally to ourselves, to to see that in China, factories are closing down in December of 2020 or 19. I'm getting my mm. years mixed up. But, but you know, we can see that there's these things that may affect our supply chains or may affect our, our customers' factories mm. or... Mm. We have to look to the economy. We have to look at outside of ourselves to be aware of changes that are going on, which even could be demographic changes uh, in populations, or it could be customer whims. And so, again, you have to empower 
the people that are outside the business or on the edge of the business, the ones that are interacting with customers and with supply chain and with factories in China. Mm. You have to empower them to notice the change and then build the communications so that they're sharing that information with mm. people inside the core business so that they can start going like, okay, something's going on here. This is going to affect our priorities or it's going to you know, even change OKRs or whatever it is. The information comes from the outside and then it's it's informing the hierarchies inside the business. Mm. It's not it's not that the boss knows everything. Mm. And then the last word is dynamic. We have to build, and this is where agile comes in. You have to build the processes in that allow people to change what they're working on or how they're doing their work based upon the new information. If you're Nokia in 2007, or 2005, you have your five-year plan for the phones you're going to build. 2007, the iPhone comes out. 2008, the iPhone takes over the world. In 2009, all Nokia is doing is building the same handsets that they started in 2005. Yeah. You know, this is the not dynamic. So Agile allows us to lift our heads up, look around, take in new information and then change what we're working if necessary, based upon that new information. So that's a rad organization. That's how we own disruption. It's how we build adaptability, this comfort of, with uncertainty inside of the business, the processes, the, the structures, the way of working. And it's long and arduous and it's hard, but it starts with, the way you get people to change is that you teach them and then they practice it. It's not, it can't just be demanded. You can't mm, stand up in no. front of your company and go like, we are going to be this way. You need the cheerleading, but you also then have to give people the space and the training and let them practice. And so in the end, it's a lot of the work that we're doing is really just practicing on real issues mm. so that it hopefully drives impact, but they're practicing the behavior of developing empathy and running experiments and using evidence and data to cut through assumptions and biases in order to inform decisions about what we should be working on based upon our understanding of the environment. Mm. And I'm just going to rebound on the word practice because it is about developmental practice, isn't it? And it is hard, but it is worthwhile. But I mean, if I take unknown unknowns, of which the pandemic is one of the categories of uh, one of those things that you can't do anything about, Clearly, we're wired to just go back to what we know, right? which is knowing, knowing what we know. So <laughs> pulling people out of there on a collective scale is difficult, isn't it? Which brings me to the five elements that you describe as the five elements of a disruptive mindset, the five E's. And the case study that you use there, of the software company Inuit, of how it's working and how it can work in in an environment as a sort of um, operationalization of what we're talking about. Could you walk our listeners through that? So first the five E's and how they could work, because that was not only very interesting, but also very impactful for me to read that and, and look at how it could actually work and play out in real life. Nice. Yeah, thank you. So the five E's, we've talked about a couple of these, but so empathy, so that's really mm -hmm. developing a deep understanding of our customers. It's not, it's not just go gathering feature requests, you know, yeah. it's understanding their environment and yeah. why they behave and what they're what the way they do and and what is their environment and what are their but what are their aspirations what are their yeah. fears what are their needs and it's applying that not only to external stakeholders but applying it to people inside the business uh, you know i think that 
you look back on the HR, right? They, I mean, they're facing human resources departments facing massive amounts of uncertainty with things like the big quit and employee retention and those type of things. And so we have to develop empathy. It doesn't mean that we have to develop products or policies that will react to everything that we learn, but at least mm. we understand the implications mm. of what we're doing. And so we have to apply that both externally and internally. Exploration is, you know, hey, what are our assumptions? How do we test our assumptions? What are some experiments that we can run so we can look at the behaviors of our customers to understand what it is that they're, what they're needing and what they'll use and how they can help solve problems. And then there's equilibrium. So it's finding inside the organization, this balance of the execution work that we know that we have to do with the learning, the exploration work. And this is going to differ in different parts of the company. You know, your sales team maybe faces not that much Mm. uncertainty. Maybe they face a lot. I don't know. But, you know, and then if you're trying to develop products that that you might release and will generate revenue two or three years down the road, there's obviously a lot more uncertainty there. And so the balance of execution and exploration work is going to differ based upon what the outcomes of teams are supposed to be. And then there's evidence. So how do we use data and insights to inform our decisions? And so, again, this is a way of cutting through our biases and Mm. and you have a common way that we're making decisions. We don't want evidence to make decisions for us. That can lead down uh, dangerous paths, but we want to be informed by Mm. the decisions or we want it to inform our decisions. And then the final one is is ethics. And I think especially true in a digital age, it's very easy for us to, as you mentioned earlier, start developing products you know, without keeping in touch with our customers, without keeping the safety of our customers in mind, without keeping, how do we want them to feel, you know, that we're driving value for them Mm -hmm. and those type of Mm -hmm. things. But Agile allows us to build those sort of ethical guardrails into the mission statements of our Agile teams, into the way people are are working. On a team dynamic, we want to create a social dynamic on that team where the the team members are holding each other accountable. So we're not all just looking to the great leader to be no. told what our values are. We want to be able to hold each other accountable to our own personal values as well as the as the company values. And so I think that those are the, the five elements. I think that the Intuit example is great. They, they don't necessarily do all of those all the time, or but the leaders in the end need to demonstrate that behavior. And so... Everybody, yes, needs to learn the new skills and they need to practice it. But in the end, you know, at Intuit, leaders had to do what they call follow me homes. Mm-hmm. And this was derived from the way Procter & Gamble actually did uh, develop consumer products is let's go watch customers mm-hmm. use our products. And so it's just this observation. It doesn't have to be, you know, it's not months of research. The point mm-hmm. isn't the research. It's no. that leaders can look and watch somebody use their products and go like, oh my gosh, this person has no idea how to get started on their home budgeting. I mean, that's Mm. crazy. I thought it was obvious. I mean, you just learn so much from watching, but the fact that executives, that they had to do this work, they had to go watch customers use their products Mm. was a way to define empathy work, that this is a value that the organization is going to take seriously and that everybody needs to do it. It's yeah. not for the isolated few. Mm. It's not just for people with design in their titles. And I think it's one of the hard things for organizations. And I don't know, maybe you have experience with this, but you know, people want to hold on to what their expertise is because 
they feel like that's what drives value and that that's what they're going to get compensated for. But democratizing things like empathy development and running experiments and those type of things actually serves to benefit you as a designer. People will be able to understand your work better. They'll actually look to you as to be a leader in that. You get to coach people in developing their skills. And ultimately, what it means is that you're all going to be driving greater impact for the business, which is really, I think, in the end, what we all desire as human beings is to have impact on society and our companies. Yeah, it is. And just picking up on that, because, yes, I see that a lot, of course. But but I do think it's around people building their identity in the organization around their results. So around where they sit in the organization and how they get their results and how they drive for their results. And I think the flatter sort of organizational structure, the more networked organizational structure is complex because the power dynamics change, of course, but it's great because it democratizes access to these type of skills, but also to equity, to a more equitable discussion around leadership. So if, if I take the hypothesis that leadership equals impact, you don't have to sit at a certain level of the organization to have an impact. You can be a key influencer or a change agent or a digital coach or what, you know, you, you can right. act and interact and have that impact in your organization, which which brings me to um, another question and sort of area I want to discuss with you, which which you title or entitle disruptive leadership. And it it really comes back to this notion of it is a complete the different type of leadership. And I would love it if you could share your definition of disruptive leadership and what it leverages. Well, so yeah, I think it's it's super interesting. So I like flatter organizations, but there still needs to be some amount of hierarchy. Uh, completely. And so I think, I'll, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a lot of critics of, of our way of thinking and they just go like, oh, well, that's just a free for all. It's chaos. And a matter of fact, there's a, a, a example I put in my book about Zappos. And, yeah. and and so the critics of it just kind of call it like, oh, this is hippie capitalism. But if you actually look at the way they work inside of their business, it's actually sort of a capitalism. It's hyper capitalism in, in some ways, because people had to justify, people get to work wherever they want, almost on any project that they want, but that they have to be able to justify it. And the justification comes down to having an economic impact. And so in that way, you're actually, you're creating sort of a free market inside of the company to yep. drive impact. Yeah. And so it's the opposite of what a lot of the critics say. And so I think the di- disruptive leader is somebody that they, first of all, practice the skills themselves. They, they lead by example. Mm. They're willing to admit when they don't know. They're willing to admit their, their failures, whether they're big or small, things that went wrong. They understand how to develop empathy for their employees, but they're also, you know, more transparent and willing to share with their own people Mm. uh, vulnerability. And so I think that that's, I think a lot of those type of skills, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown and she brings that into organizations. And and I think that that's, that's sort of a great start. I think the other thing that happens with disruptive leaders is that they understand that they're empowering teams to figure out how to work, like what to work on in order to achieve the desired outcomes, but that the leader still has means of, like it's still their responsibility to hold teams accountable to what the missions are that those teams have. And so again, it's not stepping so far away that there's no accountability inside the organization, Mm. but it's not 
here's the work that I want you to do. It's here's the desired outcome. And let's talk about the boundaries, the guardrails that we're going to put on here, including ethical, but also including what, you know, if this ends up being too small, we're going to kill it. So you need to understand like what, what is the right, how are we going to measure that we're, we've gotten to the desired outcome? What are the right metrics that we're going to use? How often are you going to report back to me your progress on those metrics? Mm. So again, is this sort of another accountability thing? I'm not going to checking in with my teams. It's my team's responsibility to check in with me. Mm. And if they're not doing that, we have a problem. But <laughs> hey, I'm empowering you all to figure out the work that you need to be done. But if you're not going to come and check in with me, we've got mm. a problem, right? So mm. It ends up being this different balance of how accountability works inside one of these uh, companies. So it's a skill that I've struggled with in my own company in terms of, you know, I feel like I'm empowering people, but I don't teach them the behavior that demonstrates empowerment. And so that's Mm. on me. I have to teach them the the behavior. So it's really kind of a, it's difficult. It's a difficult to figure out what hat you're wearing in a particular moment. Like, okay, now I'm coaching you and that's different than mentoring. And then I'm mm. giving you advice, which is okay. But now I'm stepping back into execution mode and the execution mode maybe is, okay, here's what I figured out. Can you put this into your plans mm. to go and do X, Y, Z? So it's like really, it's it's learning inside yourself how to balance, you know, what hat am I wearing in this moment? Are we in learning mode or execution mode? And 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 then it, bringing your teams to the table to figure out what the right metrics are and what the right behaviors are so that these teams, you can go away and the teams are going to function and they're going to be executing on what you need them to execute on and they're going to deliver results to you. And that allows you to become more proactive. So you're like, I could depend on this. And now I'm going to look at all of the teams that I'm managing. If I add those all together, am I achieving the desired outcomes that I'm signed up for? So I get to be more strategic in in helping the company achieve its priorities. Yeah. And it reminds me of Stanley McChrystal's teams of teams sort of of thing and how it works. And, and, And I mean, I think it's a common misconception that flat organizations are a free-for-all and you don't have a boss right. anymore. But but I think, yes, hierarchy sh- should and will always exist to some extent. And I think, ironically, you have to define things even more clearly in a networked organization for the reasons you just mentioned, accountability, empowerment, who's doing what. I'm not going to come and ask you, so you need to really understand where your personal agency lies and, and what you're delivering. Which brings me to my next question is, what is the biggest challenge you're seeing, Bran, in organizations trying to define their model for ways of working in today's environment. Yeah, I think that like what I'm seeing is often the the it really comes down to teaching people empowered behavior. So, I've worked with an organization several times where the leaders are completely bought in and in some ways maybe they take a step away from the process too much, but that's kind of okay at the beginning. Mm. But team members are sitting around waiting to be told what to do. And so this is the tough part Mm. is to actually get them, teach them the agency that you mentioned. It's, Mm. and, and then once they get the agency teaching them how to report out, because their first inclination is to report out in a way that again, defers decisions or defers authority to their bosses. And so Mm. how do you flip that? And so I'm trying to get the, teams, we try to get the teams to think about like, 
pretend you're a startup and and you all are the management team of the startup, you're not going to the investors and asking for permission. You're going to the investors and telling them what you're doing, but you're also telling them, here's the path Mm. to the outcomes that you invested in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you're not ignoring the leadership, but what you're doing is you're owning what you're sharing with them. You're owning the path towards those desired outcomes. And so there's a mentality that you're trying to develop there that is not just, oh, we get to work on what we're working on uh, or that what we think is best, but that they feel like empowerment means they get to tell the bosses what's going on, right? And what's interesting is that often on the teams, there is hierarchy in the sense of the way, you know, sort of their jobs inside Mm. of a virtual organization. Mm. And so we we spend a lot of time and effort going like, okay, you leave the hierarchy at the door when you're operating within this team. And again, so there's a lot of people there that have to sort of change their hats. Like, Mm. okay, here's the other part of my job where I have to respect hierarchy. And here's this part of the job where I'm supposed to check my hierarchy at the door Mm. and we're working as a a collaborative team. And and so Mm. we you know, you'll change roles on a team. Who's the facilitator of the of the meeting? Who's the note taker? Who's the sensei? You know, and so you're trying to get people to practice those behaviors of keeping a conversation on par and, and not letting other team members go down a rabbit hole. And so it could be a person more junior that, than you that are saying, okay, we need to get back to the core, the core conversation here. And so, yeah, that's a lot of work is to try to overcome the the hierarchy that everybody's been living with and is taught in school and is yeah, taught in absolutely. MBA programs. And it's, yeah. you know, we all do it as children, but of then course. by the time we're adults, it's been, you know, kind of driven out of us. And so it's really trying to get back to that. Unformatting and reformatting, isn't it? Sort of at a collective yes. level. And, and that's, that's tough as well, isn't it? In terms of, it's quite a tough ask to get somebody to just unformat and reformat the way they define the value they're bringing to a certain situation. But, but I think, I think uh, that, yeah, yeah, it's, it is very tough. And and so it does require the very senior leaders to go like, okay, we're doing this and they have yes, to, yes, they have yeah. to stick with it. Yeah. Yes. Learning agility, which brings me to my, unfortunately, probably one of the last questions because time is running, but how do you scale? this type of change. I know you dedicate quite a lot of time to it in your book. It would be really interesting if you could share with us some of the ways in which you can scale this behavioral change, because it's one of the most frequently asked questions that I get in my work and that I hear in the forums around, it's not always in those words, it's how do you scale empathy? How do you get teams of teams to be teams of teams and therefore ecosystems of teams? It's the same question, Brandt. How do you scale adaptive change? How do you scale mindset change so that it brings business results? I mean, I think that in the end, I probably have to say, I don't know. I mean, I've seen it happen inside of a a few organizations. Mm. Uh, Most Mm. actually struggle to get to scale. I write about it, you know, giving the examples uh, that I've seen. I don't really want to pretend that there's sort of a one size fits all or one way fits all. It depends so much on culture and who your leaders are and how bought in and, and, you know, where you're starting from. Mm. Um, so I, I'll throw that out as a caveat. I don't, I don't want to pretend that I figured it all out, but to me, what I find in most organizations is that you have to, you have to start with the, the 
assuming that we've got board or and C-suite support, you have to start on the on the ground floor. Mm. And I think you have to actually start with the core business, which runs probably counter to you know what the innovation industry has always peddled. But the core business is the one who they have the money. I mean, mm. whether or not they formally have the budget or not is not as important as the fact that they're the ones that are generating the revenue for the organization. Yeah. But I have absolutely no doubt, based upon how we've defined, you know, disruption, that they are the ones that face uncertainty that really threatens that revenue. And so there's a, I think that there's a sense of urgency there if you if you can convince them that you need to use this mindset over to help them overcome uncertainty. Mm. And the moment that you're actually able to demonstrate an impact to the core business, now what you're going to get is momentum for this mm. sort of change. Mm. And so what we've seen in a number of organizations is that when the, the innovation team or the center of excellence is able to drive impact for different parts of the organization that is visible to the core business, the core business leaders go, hey, we want some of that. Right. Yeah. And so that's sort of this momentum shift, right? Mm. It's like as a group of you know entrepreneurial or innovation mindset people, you're pushing, you're pushing, you're pushing. If you're able to drive some amount of near-term impact, you then start getting core business going like, okay, we want this. And so that's sort of this tipping point that starts driving, you know, more the potential, at least for more permanent change. It certainly mm. drives momentum in scaling the behavior. Mm. I think that then what you need to ensure that you're doing is building, you know, the mechanisms or the, the processes and the systems and even how people are reporting in order, you know, the structure mm. in order the for the outcome of the structure to be the behavior that you want. So in other words, mm -hmm. if you if you form a group that's very hierarchical and very command and control, you know, sender driven, then it's not a surprise that what you get are people that are sitting there waiting to be told what to do. Absolutely. Whereas if you're building what, you know, the network and even if it's just a part of the organization that is this networked part of the uh, organization then the behavior, like you've got cross-functional where you need cross-functional based upon the mission, where there's a mission that actually doesn't require cross-functionality, it will look very much like the existing business. Mm. You've just gotten to there a different way. But if you build the part of the organization that way, the natural behavior is for those teams to operate in a way that allows them to achieve the desired outcomes, right? Mm. So if you're giving them the right metrics, and you give them the power to do the work, it kind of happens, right? If you mm -hmm. allow the structure to emerge in order to get to that desired outcome. And so it's, it's again, you're, we're talking about leaders that are able to step back enough to allow that to yeah. sort of organically form. But so if you're allowing that to happen and, you're, and then you start saying as a organization, now we're going to look at our core back office functions and we're going to start building the processes that support that new emerging structure. We're going to protect it from a change in leadership, or we're going to protect it from, you know, other parts of the organization wanting to own it or, you mm. know, whatever is right for your organization, but you start building the systems and processes that say, okay, this is, seems to be working. Now we're going to build these mm. company components that institute that, that automate that part of the 
that structure and those processes. And now you start having a business that's it's almost emerging from within the old business. It's not, you know, cannibalism. It's not mm. disruptive innovation. It's not a snake eating its own tail. It's actually a different business. And this is, I think, happening in some organizations with digital transformation. Siemens is a good example. They have this whole digital group that was operating in a way more agile fashion than the rest. And so then Siemens started putting non-digital underneath its digital umbrella because of the mm -hmm. way they were working and the outcomes they were achieving. And so it's a great example of how if you can get that behavior and you're emerging and you're seeing the outcomes, then you can start spreading that to different parts of the organization. So that's really kind of the scaling phase is you're pushing, you're mm -hmm. pushing, you're pushing, mm -hmm. then you're getting pull. And now you're developing the systems or the processes and the structures that reinforce that new way of working. And I think that's so important. And that example is great because often the question is, we have an innovation or a digital satellite structure of however many hundreds or thousands of people. How do we put it back into the larger organization where we know we've got antibodies and we know we've got a culture of business as usual? So I think that's really interesting. But as time is running, I would like to ask you one more question. If you have a call to action, for leaders who are listening to this podcast thinking, hmm, not quite sure <laughs> my organization or my leadership is as disruption-proof as it could be, what would your call to action to them be? A couple of things. One is, is that depending on your role, if you really don't have buy-in yet, I think that the, the first step is to create community. So inside of larger organizations, especially, there are a lot of people that get it, that want to work this way, and that actually already are maybe doing some of it. They're, again, they're design thinkers, or they're they're running experiments, or they're running, they used to be entrepreneurs. or So there's a mindset that actually exists. And so bring all of those people together. And that's sort of a starting point. Mm. In the end, I think that if you're a leader, you know, I think it's building, form an agile team. If you're not doing agile, Form a sort of informal, agile team to take away one of your own uncertainties. So in other words, people have their regular job and you're not going to change that right away. Carve out some time for those people that work for you to form a team. Give them a challenge. Give them a challenge mm. that you think will benefit your part of the organization that will reduce some uncertainty that you have that will allow you to hit your objectives easier. And start playing around with this idea that this team is now empowered to go and develop empathy for whatever challenge you give them, that they can run experiments, that they can try to figure out pretty much on their own how to solve the problem that you mm -hmm. have. And so I think I, you know, that's just a great way for you to start playing with it and seeing how it works inside of your own part of the organization. But you can also then start inviting others to observe and you can actually maybe find other leaders that have challenges that you can start giving to your part of the organization. And, and so you're trying to find ways that you can drive this near-term impact that mm. demonstrates that organizing and working in this way can be super impactful for the organization. Mm. Thank you. I'm going to leave our, our listeners with what I heard there, which was give yourself a mandate to go and try, take permission to go and try, and go and find people who think like you, who want to push the boundaries and who want to do things differently. Yeah. Excellent. Brandt, yep. thank you very much for coming and sharing your thoughts and your experience and your expertise on this topic. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? Yeah. So I 
I'm Brant Cooper everywhere on social media. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, send me an email if you want. I respond to everything, brant at brantcooper.com. And so I really do encourage people to reach out if they have any questions of their own or just want to discuss this at all. Um, my company is Moves the Needle. So movestheneedle.com if you want to check that out. But I, I would just you know encourage people to reach out. Okay. And I would encourage you all, for those of you just listening, I'm holding up Brant's book, Disruption Proof. Great read. There's lots of uh, case studies in there and it's very, very accessible. So I'll leave our listeners with that final thought. Thanks so much, Susie. It was a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you, Brent. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights and learning it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Transformation.